George was age 80, Jane 78, and they decided to get married. They went out for a drive, talk about the wedding, make plans. They passed a drugstore. They decided they would stop and walk in together. George finds the manager, begins to ask him questions. Do you, he asked the manager, do you have heart medicine? The manager says, we do. Do you have a support hose for helping circulation? The manager says, all kinds. Uh, George asks, do you have um, medication for osteoporosis and arthritis? Uh, all kinds. Do you have uh, plastic furniture covers, Depends, Insure, and Geritol? And the manager said, we have brands and we have generic. And then George asked, do you have reading glasses, denture cream, and hearing aid supplies? Absolutely. Uh, do you have walkers, canes, and wheelchairs? All kinds, all sizes. Finally, the manager says, why all these questions? And George looks over at Jane, Jane nods, and then George says to the manager, we've decided to use your store as our wedding registry. At the end of the Christian story, it's a wedding. We read about it in Revelation 19. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a huge crowd or the roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and honor him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She is permitted to wear the finest white linen. Fine linen represents the good deeds done by the people of God. And the angel said, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words that come from God. The questions are who is invited to the wedding feast, who gets a seat, who is given fine white linen? Those are actually questions that are underneath our text today in Mark 7. On the surface, it seems like Jesus and his pastors, the Pharisees, are just wrangling over religious ritual, but underneath, what they're really asking is who gets to live with God? Today we're going to look at the conflict in Mark 7, and then we're going to take an interlude in the middle of our, our message and uh, wrestle with the question, how does a person get a clean heart from Jesus? And we're going to have an interlude and, and have a video that explains that very well. And then after that, we're actually going to see Jesus moving into Gentile territory again and preaching and giving two people their seats at the wedding feast. The conflict. The Pharisees have come 90 miles from Jerusalem to up north in Galilee because they keep hearing about this Jesus. And while they're watching him and maybe engaging him, they notice that the disciples that follow Jesus, they don't wash their hands before they eat food. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament 
does it say that anyone is required to wash hands it mentions the priests need to bathe before they go into the holy of holies on the day of atonement but that's as far as you get now here in the 21st century in our culture we need to be reminded too that this has nothing to do with hygiene germs were not discovered this was all about religious ritual in fact when mark talks about the hand washing he uses a unique phrase in the original language it doesn't say hand washing it literally says fist washing fist and they think the scholars think it re either refers to a certain technique that the pastors would teach how to get ritually pure and prepared to meet God or it could refer to an amount of water that you were supposed to use to wash your hands but either way they are talking about ritual you see for the Pharisees what they believed is that clean hearts righteousness before God comes from the outside in so if you cleaned up your outside world, then you were and could be right with God. So to clean up your outside world meant having nothing to do with bad people. Staying away from mildew, from bodily fluids, from death and decay. Anything on the outside that would contaminate you. And if it did happen to contaminate you, well then you needed to go through your rituals and get right so that you could go back and go into the temple and get into the community again and not contaminate anyone. You see, what the Pharisees believed is that meeting God was something like going out on a first date or a big job interview. You needed to get clean. You needed to stay clean. You, you needed to look good. And now Jesus would not disagree with the Pharisees that in our current condition we are unfit to live in the presence of God. But the disagreement was about how you become clean and stay clean. So when the Pharisees push Jesus on the hand washing, let's just say that Jesus responds. He actually pushes back really hard, and we see this in three ways. First is Jesus calls them a name. Did you catch what it was? You hypocrites. Now anyone living in that time knew about the Greek theater. Probably heard stories about how the, the actors would wear masks to pretend that they were another character and another person. Jesus is calling his pastors pretenders. Whoa. If you want to start a good debate, start off with name calling. From there, he goes all Isaiah on them. He quotes Isaiah and says, You blather on to get near me with your lips, but in your heart, you are on the other coast. You are elevating human traditions above my Torah, the law. So he calls them a name. He goes all Isaiah on them. You know, right, that if a rabbi quoted something from the prophets and said, you are them, you were in a fight. Thirdly, Jesus uses the unique literary tool called irony. We may even push it into the boundary, uh, past the boundary of uh, sarcasm. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God to elevate your traditions. And so from there, Jesus is going to give them an example. In the text, you might have wondered, Corbin, when Elliot mentioned, what is Corbin? This is one example where Jesus' pastors were elevating human tradition above what the law in the Old Testament actually said through this experience of Corbin. What Corbin meant, the word means a gift devoted to God. And what some adult sons were doing was they were taking portions of their land 
And in a, in a quick ceremony at the temple with a priest, they would announce that that part of the land is now Corban, which means totally dedicated to God. Now the son could still grow crops on the land, could still make income from the land, but he could not sell that land because in a form of deferred giving, that land now belonged to the temple. So if the adult son's parents needed help, they got in dire straits, needed financial support, or even a place to go and live, because that land belonged to the temple, the son could not give that land to his parents. And so now what had happened through that human tradition of Corban was that the son was not obeying the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. So you see Jesus is calling them out on a human tradition, Corban, and saying you are elevating your traditions even above the fifth commandment so Jesus wraps it into a summary statement with the larger crowd he said look it's not what's on the outside that's going to contaminate you and you have that you're trying to make all these rules and regulations about it's not the outside that's going to contaminate you it's what's on the inside coming out that will contaminate you and others we used to have way back in the early days of Waterstone a church van I mean this is back in the 90s uh that was called Hobart, affectionately given that name by the kids. Hobart was an amazing experience of faith back in the day. Um, I actually started here at Waterstone while I was in seminary. My first volunteer staff position was that I used to go around on Sunday nights through the inner city of Englewood uh, where we had interfaith task force and I'd pick up all these poor kids from Englewood and we'd bring them to our Awana program on Sunday nights. And we'd use Hobart to go get these kids. But you could count on it as sure as the sun rising that uh, about every other week, Hobart would break down. In fact, I used to just carry a roll of quarters in my pocket when I would drive to pick up these kids because you could count on Hobart breaking down and this was before cell phones. So I, it was not uncommon for me and eight kids following behind me looking for a, cell or a payphone in Englewood. And I'd call up our Hobart deacon, the late Dan Harold. And I'd say, Dan, Dan, Hobart's down. And uh, he'd say, I'll be there in a few minutes. And we'd come and fix Hobart. He would. The other thing Hobart was known for was that Hobart was a recovering school bus. He was black and yellow. Every summer, the kids would put a coat of white paint on him and redo the church name. But within months, the yellow was bleeding through. From a distance, Hobart looked white. But when we got up close, Hobart was yellow. The moral of the story, once you are a school bus, you are always a school bus. <laughs> you see, it's from the inside. It's the inside coming out that contaminates us and others that we come in contact with. Jesus there pulls away from the large crowd and he goes into a house and has a conversation, a teaching moment with his disciples. He wants to drill down further on this. He changes the, this topic to the food laws of the Old Testament. And what he's going to do is to point to the food laws, unclean food and clean food, and say, look, I am fulfilling all of that, and all of that points to me. He uses this amazing illustration with the disciples, rather blunt, if you ask me. He says, look, if you say some food is unclean, but it, you eat it, and it goes through you and comes out of you. It, Jesus is that blunt. And uh, he says, now, your Pharisees, while they believe human waste is foul, they do not believe it is unclean. 
So we have a logic problem here. They're saying that what's unclean, you eat it, it comes out, it's clean. What gives? Jesus is making the point. It's not what goes into you that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of you. And then Jesus drills down to the very bottom, the human heart, verses 20 to 23, and says, here is where uncleanness lies. Do we have the next slide? Oh, there we go. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And he lists now six actions, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice. And these are fueled by six attitudes, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus is saying, look, it's not all your laws about being clean and rituals that you do to try to make it right with God. You've got to worry about what's inside of you. All of this comes from the human heart. So we step out of this for a moment of application. We look around our world. We say, what is going on? All this misery, racism, war, violence, sexual assault. Where is it all coming from? Answer, the human heart. It's coming from us. What's wrong with the world? I remember reading G.K. Chesterton once in the, during the First World War, the London Times ran an essay contest and the title of it, What's Wrong with the World? G.K. Chesterton, the great uh, journalist and, and writer said, uh, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. We are what's wrong with the world, the human heart. We'd like to say, as Solzhenitsyn does, that you know, we'd like to divide lines between good people and bad people and say all the bad comes from there. No, it's here. It's on the inside. Solzhenitsyn wrote, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? But we try, right? We try to say that we can draw lines and keep bad over there and good over here, bad people over there, good people over here. We try. We try through our religion. We try to have rituals that say, well, if you just do this, this, and this, if you read your Bible, give some money, and go to church, then you'll be a good person. And if you're a good person, then God will have to be good to you, and you'll have a clean heart. Does that work? That's not the system. That's other religions, that's not Christianity. But we try, we try to make it work. Now, there's two problems with that system. The first is, how good is good enough? I mean, God is absolutely perfect, burning in purity and holiness. So how good is good enough? And the second trouble with that system, and I've seen this destroy people's lives and their peace. Because we get into this way of thinking, well, if I am good, if I go to church and read my Bible and give money and help the poor and just basically treat people the way I want to be treated, if I do all that, then I'll manipulate God into being good to me. And then what happens when death or divorce or disease or loss of job, when any of that enters your life and you're being a good person? You know what that's called? Bitterness. Anger chucking it all 
It's the wrong system. But we still try to make that work. You know where else I see people trying to get their hearts clean through outside circumstances? It's in our culture. You walk through the grocery stand at King Supers and you look on any of those magazine covers and you'll see the Ten Commandments of our culture. Get thin. Get abs. Get flawless skin. Be good in bed. Wear this. Play hard. We could all keep going on and adding all of the things our culture is telling us in order to get clean and get the approval and the things your heart needs. You see, because it's the human heart that is really what is sucking in all this in and, and the, the pursuit of, of filling the human heart is what hurts other people. Then we think from these magazine covers, well, sometimes you just need a little boost to follow these cultural commands. So what you need to do is read how this celebrity's doing it. And I can be just like them. I'll never look like them, but I can be just like them. And do the things that they've done to attain their successful standing. I'm telling you, it's a black hole. Uh, Christina Kelly, who used to be a magazine editor for YM, Young, Young Miss and Mademoiselle magazine, she once wrote, why do we crave celebrities? Here's my theory. To be human is to feel inconsequential. Wow. Isn't that an amazing admission? To be human is to feel inconsequential. So we worship celebrities and we seek to look like them. All the great things they have done, we identify with in order to escape our own inconsequential lives. But it's so dumb. With this stream of perfectly airbrushed, implanted, liposuction stars... You would have to be an absolute powerhouse of self-esteem already not to feel totally inferior before them. So we worship them because we feel inconsequential, but doing it makes us feel even worse. We make them stars, but then their fame makes us feel insignificant. I am part of this process as an editor. No wonder I feel soiled at the end of the day. Wow. It's not from the outside. It's from the inside coming out that makes us unclean. Well then, the question is begged. How does a human heart become clean to meet with God? Video interlude from thebibleproject.com. Let's watch this video called Holiness. So we see that the way to a clean heart is Jesus. Jesus asking him receiving him into our hearts and he makes us clean and now in the final two stories of our text in mark 7 we see jesus doing this to two people two people who are very far away from god the first is a woman jesus is up in the region of tyre outside of galilee now he's in gentile territory and you remember the Jews had a very low esteem of the Gentiles, people who didn't have the law, people who didn't ha follow their religious rituals. In fact, they called them dogs because in those days, dogs were not pets. Dogs were rodents who, who made their meals from people's garbage. And so they were unclean. And so this woman comes up. She has a daughter who's full of demons and in need of help. And she begs Jesus for her daughter. And Jesus makes one of the most offensive statements in the Gospels. Jesus is still taking a lot of heat for this. His answer in this parable, let the children eat all they want first, he told her. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now I know you'll have some interesting discussion on that in your small groups. 
But I think what's important here is that what Jesus is saying, that I'm the way to a clean heart, and it's only my way. And you remember that the mission of God was for him to come first to the Jewish people. They're the children at the table. First to the Jews and feed the Jews and give the Jews the living bread. And then the Jews were responsible to be a light to the world, and the Jews would invite all nations to this living bread. So this is the mission of God that Jesus is reminding this woman. And in a sense, the woman must have had this thought, oh no, oh no, he's not going to heal my daughter because we're not Jewish. So the woman says, and you have to admire her pluck, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Two things in this woman's response. First, her humility. Yes, Lord, I do see your mission. I do see that it comes to the Jews first and then to the world. I accept and acknowledge all that, her humility, but then her belief that still in God's mission there is mercy for the outsider. She becomes a beggar of grace, and Jesus responds by healing her daughter. And then the second story, a deaf man comes up to Jesus. And what's unique about this miracle is the great and fine detail. We see Jesus pulling the deaf man uh, into privacy. And the, Jesus is going to enter this deaf man's world of isolation. He's going to touch his ears, spit on his hands and touch his tongue, which would been a very unclean thing to do ritually. Jesus completely enters this man's world. Some scholars think that Jesus even began to use sign language with this deaf man. He completely entered this man to the point of groaning and sighing and just feeling this man's pain. We have to ask, what is going on here? Well, Mark gives us a clue. The word he uses to describe the deaf man, magalilos, literally is the, it's the only word uh, to describe a deaf person in the New Testament. There's, whenever they describe deafness in every other reference, it's a different word for a deaf person. So it's a unique word. And what Mark is doing is wanting us to cross-reference with the only other place in the Bible this word is used. And it's right here. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance and divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then... The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. What Mark wants us to know is that when you have a situation where there's someone who has the power to open ears and to loosen tongues, well, it must be that that's the one who's come. Your God will come and he will take vengeance and divine retribution on himself in order to save those who are begging for mercy. Two applications as we press this message in to our lives. The first is this waterstone. Waterstone. We must be a place of grace. We are all beggars of mercy. 
we are all found ourselves in Matthew, Mark chapter 7, verse 20 to 23. We are all have this in our hearts. We all need clean hearts. And the only way our hearts have become clean is through Jesus. But we are all beggars. And so we must treat each other as beggars of grace. So what does that mean? That means, first of all, in, inside, in-house, we all realize that we are all sinners. We're all beggars. We don't walk around this church and think everyone wears white hats. Everyone wears gray hats around here. Everyone is a combination of pluses and minuses. Until we get to heaven and the actual wedding feast, we are all going to be struggling with our sins. And so our response to each other is always mercy and grace. You know what it should look like? Something like this. Story told about Billy and Ruth Graham. Do you remember, uh, have you heard the name Jim Baker? <laughs> televangelist in the 70s and 80s who flamed out he stole people's money he lied he had affairs he was everything that's wrong with Christianity he went to jail after he got out of jail this is in his words now Jim Baker I got out of prison and Billy and Ruth Graham called me they wanted to sponsor me pay for a house for me to live in, and give me a car to drive. The first Sunday out, Ruth Graham called the halfway house I was living in at the Salvation Army and asked permission for me to go to the Montreat Presbyterian Church with her that Sunday morning. When I got there, the pastor welcomed me, sat me with the Graham family. There, there were like two rows of them. I think every Graham aunt and uncle and cousin was there. The organ began playing and the place was full except for the seat next to me. Then the doors opened and in walked Ruth Graham. She walked down that aisle and sat next to inmate 074070-058. I had only been out of prison 48 hours, but Ruth Graham told the world that morning that Jim Baker was her friend. May that be true of Waterstone. We are a place of grace. We are also a place of grace in that we are people who follow Jesus and therefore break social boundaries. I mean, this woman that he gave a seat at the wedding feast, the Syrophoenician woman, she was as far socially from Jesus as you could get. She was a woman, she was a Gentile in a very pagan area, and she had a demon-laced daughter in her house. All of those things, the Jews would never have touched her. Jesus broke every social barrier to reach her. Do you have someone in your life with whom to be their friend and to show them the kingdom and to give them Jesus' love, you'd have to break a barrier. A skin color, a sexual identity, ethnicity, socioeconomic status. What? That you would have to break a social barrier even at the risk of being shamed if other people saw you with them. That you'd be identified with them. Do you have anyone in your life that's different than you whom you are pursuing with the grace of God. We must be a place of grace. Second, and this is as we prepare to come to the Lord's table now, 
we must place grace into our own lives. Some of you have been dragging around a ball and chain of a sin that you committed years ago. And when you close your eyes still at night or have time in your inner world to think, it still comes up. A sin, a mistake, a failure that you made years ago. For others of us, it's the same sin that we commit a hundred times and we just can't stop. It is then and for these things that we must place grace in our lives. We understand that in Jesus, in order to give us a clean heart, that God put our sin on Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Him, Jesus, to be sin. Him who had no sin, He made Him to be sin in order that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father clothes Jesus in our dirty clothes, our sins. And Jesus took them to the cross. You know, He died in a garbage dump. He became unclean for us. He became isolated for us. He took all of that on Himself so that He could take it away from us. I'm telling you, challenging you, if you're one of those people dragging your sin around, believe the Gospel. Believe the Gospel. You are the only one holding on to that sin. Let it go as you come to the table. Leave your sin. Jesus is inviting you to a wedding rehearsal this morning for that moment when you will sit down clothed in the fine white linen. He already sees you that way. Let go of your sin. Give it to Him. Walk in a clean heart. Jesus pronounces you forgiven this morning. So as the servers take their positions around the room, I invite them to come now. We come to the table with these words from Jesus in Mark chapter 14. After I read this, a prayer is going to go up on the screen. I invite you to pray that prayer once or 50 times. Prepare your heart. Leave your sins behind and come to the wedding rehearsal this morning. Take off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup. You can take it anywhere around the room you want or back to your seat and just have this wedding time with Jesus. In the end, it's a wedding. Mark 14. While the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God.